Hello and welcome to another episode of the Golden Hour Podcast brought to you by the Polar Pro Studio. I'm your host, Dave Mays, and returning to the show for his second time is motorsports photographer, Jamie Price. If you haven't listened to my original interview with Jamie Price about a year ago, I encourage you to do so. I'll link it in the show notes and in the description of the video. In that podcast, we talk about his journey into photography, starting in horse racing, which led to eventually getting into motorsports photography and I would encourage you all to go to Jamie's Instagram account as we're doing this interview so you can see how incredible his photos actually are. You can find him on social media at Jamie Price photo and make sure to send him a DM and let him know that you heard him on this episode of the Golden Hour podcast. In our conversation, we talk about all sorts of different things ranging from how COVID has shaped the industry to camera gear that he uses and why he sticks with DSLR over mirrorless, as well as what he sees in the future of the motorsports photography niche. Before we start our interview, I do want to apologize about the audio. We had some audio issues and I ended up having to use the Zoom recording, which I think was using the microphone on Jamie's MacBook. So the quality isn't as perfect as I would like it. That doesn't take away from the content that Jamie shares with us today. So without any further ado, let's listen in to my conversation with Jamie. All right. Well, uh, today we have again to the show, Jamie Price. Thank you for joining us for the second time on yeah. the Golden Hour podcast. It's an honor to be back. <laughs> Things are a little different now. Um, I wish I was in LA. I, w- I mean, I'm sure you don't. I'm not, LA, yeah, but. I'm gone, man. <laughs> the weather is a lot track. nicer over there. <laughs> yeah. It's been raining and cold and like it, it was 30, 32 degrees Fahrenheit yesterday and raining all day. <laughs> yep. I mean, same here, except it was snowing. You you, you didn't have snow. It was just no, really cold rain. No snow. Just gross. Yeah. I guess now our weather patterns are, are fairly similar. Yeah. Sort of I'm going to be 70 and sunny every day for you now. You <laughs> seasons. Exactly. Um, Yeah, I mean, the last we talked, we were just talking about this before we started rolling, but it was a little over a year ago, and it was obviously pre-pandemic, so things were just, everything was great. It was a new year. We were excited. (laughs) Uh, You were out there for a big uh, event. It was a big um, race in, uh, was it in Long Beach or? Um, It was at Anaheim Angel State. Gotcha. Yeah. And again, you know, for those of you who haven't listened to my previous interview with Jamie, I'll link it in the show notes below or the, you know, the description of the video. Uh, highly recommend it. In that interview, we go into Jamie's background, how he got started in uh, motocross or, you know, what do you call it? Motor, uh, motor, motor sports. Motor sports. Umbrella. Yeah, but not motocross. That's, that's dirt bikes. But I'm sure you have done plenty of motocross, right? Well, that's pretty much what I was out there shooting in, L- in LA. Is, uh, it was supercross. So supercross is indoor motorcycle racing. Yeah. And motocross is outdoor motorcycle racing. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> Someone will probably correct me on that. I'm probably wrong somehow, but that's basically what it is. But it really was truly, I'm not just saying this because you're the guest today, but it was one of my favorite interviews because it's just such, it's it's a, a niche of the photography market that is rarely talked about, at least in, at least what I've seen on YouTube, on Instagram, like there's obviously a community of people out there and, I'm, and you're friends with all of them, I'm sure. But 
um, the kind of sports photography world, at least to me, was brand new. I, I just didn't even really know anything about it. So you're talking about how you got started riding horses and just the amazing stories in Europe and stuff. I mean, it's a great interview. I highly recommend it. Everybody go check it out. Um, but we were just chatting on Twitter. I think uh, I've been following you for a year and all of a sudden you started tweeting recently and I was like, oh, there's Jamie. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I've been on Twitter a long time, actually. Twitter I find to be difficult with uh, discoverability, kind of like we were also talking about with podcasts. But um, yeah, it's true. My, my Twitter, my Twitter uh, following is probably the lowest of all the followings that I have. <laughs> it does not grow very quickly. It's so annoying because I, I enjoy using it, um, but it's the same. It's like I put no effort in my Instagram at all, and I think I have more followers there than Twitter, but yeah, whatever. Uh, it is what it is. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to be here to talk about just what's happened the last year for you as a sports and a motor sports uh, photographer what you know the pandemic has caused and then also just some of the new gear and you know the new sony a1 just dropped a couple of weeks ago i'd love to get your thoughts on that so um so yeah we got lots of things to talk about today but uh um, yeah. how has it been this year i mean uh here we are one year later a lot has happened what happened in your industry during 2020 it was a it was a pretty seismic uh shift that happened for all of us um anybody that covers an event where large numbers of people are in in one place at one time um it's taken we've taken a beating i was pretty much unemployed from march until july i had a few jobs here and there in charlotte my hometown but all the racing stopped pretty much globally and there really just wasn't a lot happening um, and because most of my income, it's about 80% of my income is from car racing or some form of motorsport, all of that just disappeared. And because I'm a self-employed contractor, um, I wasn't eligible for unemployment benefits until basically like the second round that they, they did some changes. I guess it was June. So at that point I was like, well, I'm already going back to work now, so I don't need unemployment. But um, it was it was tough. They... We did get racing again. Um, I guess our first race back was July 4th weekend. So yeah, it was, it was great to be back. There was a ton of restrictions, as you can imagine. We, there weren't fans allowed. Um, even when you're standing outside with nobody around you and a race car, that's 200 yards that way, you still have to wear a mask. Um, and wearing a mask when you're outside in, in Florida, in, uh, in July is not a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, it was, it was tough, but they, they did figure out how to keep things moving and keep things rolling, you know, big, I, I, I give public shout outs and appreciation to them a lot, but IMSA, which is the um, governing body of the sport that I cover mostly did an absolutely fantastic job. We really didn't have any cases um, confirmed during a race weekend. So they kept us all in our little unique bubbles and, we, we really didn't have an outbreak. Um, we went, we finished our entire season. It ended up a little later in the year than normal. Normally we'd finish in like the first week of October. And this year we went to like the third week of November. Um, so, you know, but they did keep us working, which is the, the best part. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, obviously the Super Bowl just happened and you know, these sports 
you know, franchises and stuff. They've figured out how to do it with uh, cardboard cutouts in the state, in the stadiums and, you know, having people on the field tested and all that kind of stuff. But it is what it is. I mean, you can, humans kind of adapt to things and it seems like, you know, halfway through the year and then definitely towards the end of the year, people just kind of started getting back to normal within this new normal that we have. So my fear is that the, the normal will, will persist for a long time. Um, I hope that it doesn't, but that's my fear is that it will, um, you know, having like the Indianapolis 500 where there's basically 300,000 people in one place, like the Super Bowl is like, Ooh, big numbers. Like, okay, great. The biggest, the biggest NFL stadium is like 75 or 80,000. Maybe I know there's some bigger college stadiums, you know, Indy 500, 250,000 people, Daytona 500, like 200,000 people. Uh, the Nurburgring 24 hour is like closer to 300 or 400,000 people. So these big sporting events are going to take a while to, to go back to normal. And I'm worried yeah. that normal is going to be a, a couple of years down the road. That's a good point. I mean, do you happen to know if the Olympics are on track to go this year? Are they going to push it back again? They're, they're on track, I think. Okay. I won't be there, but they're on track. You're not going? <laughs> no, not going. Not, not that I know of anyway. Okay. Um, well, it seems like you were able to kind of make it work, but I mean, when you were, when you were first hit with kind of the lack of work, I mean, what were, what was going through your head and what were some of the things that you had to do to figure out ways to make money? It was scary. Um, but I, I really tried to use the opportunity, the, the time at home, cause I don't normally get a lot of time at home, um, to my, to my benefit. Like I, I picked up some work, shooting outdoor lifestyle stuff. I started shooting some fly fishing, um, for a local retailer. I picked up a little work with a local, uh, garden architect, like a landscape architect, um, who just wanted some nice pictures of houses in the area. And they were willing to pay pretty good money because they were considered essential workers. And so that they continued their work and, and spring in the Carolinas is a beautiful time of year. So I, did have some work. I mean, I was, I was paying bills, but I wasn't making any money. Um, but I really just didn't, I did enjoy my time at home a lot because normally I wouldn't get like five months of uninterrupted, no travel, nowhere to go, nothing to do. And I could spend it at home with my wife and our son and our dog and, and enjoy, like we had a really, it was a really nice spring and it wasn't something that I would normally be able to enjoy and and get to experience that much so there was upsides to it just financially it wasn't it wasn't a great quarter i remember talking to several youtubers on this podcast during the pandemic and actually the pandemic caused this show to go to zoom and now uh i you know have obviously moved from california to tennessee and i'm able to continue the show as if nothing has happened. And, uh, you know, when we did our interview, we did it in person at the Polar Pro studio. And I really did enjoy that kind of, you know, there's something to obviously face to face, real interaction to me right now. I'm looking into a camera lens, but then you're off to the side over here. And then when you're talking to me, you're looking at the iPhone that you're filming on. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, you lose that connection, but, um, 
it is funny how a lot of the YouTubers that I interviewed, including myself, like we were very busy <laughs> because uh, people were really going to YouTube to watch content because they were bored at home, not working. And yeah. um, so now I'm actually taking a break from YouTube. I've left, you know, the channel I was working for and I'm finally getting some of that time that, <laughs> that I should have had, you know, six months ago that it seems like everybody else had. But um, anyways, I don't know why I'm saying that because, you know, it doesn't help you in your situation, but. But it's all the same though. I mean, I, I definitely miss the, the personal interactions at the track and being able to yeah. hug people and handshake and interact and uh, network that those, those personal connections are a huge part of my job and how I get work and have kept work. And, of course. you know, now that everything's online or people and people are afraid to go out to dinner and it's changed a lot. I mean, thank God that you, you know, you started your career you know, years ago, and you're able to have those connections. I I feel for people who are just getting started now who, like, can you imagine trying to get into the industry now, you know, as a newcomer? I actually, I have had uh, a ton of people reach out to me um, via email and, and Instagram DMs. And they're like, you know, how do you, how do you get started? And the answer hasn't changed. The problem now is you can't go to these races as a fan. Like they're not allowing fans. And if they are allowing fans, the access is terrible. Like normally in a normal year with IMSA WeatherTech, you're allowed to wander the paddock. You're allowed to wander around the garages. And right now everything's closed. So yeah, it's, I mean, I, I feel for people that are trying to get their foot in the door and trying to, you know, start in an industry that's already really difficult to get your foot into. I, I you know, there's no easy answers. It's not, <laughs> it's not good right now. I guess just to rent out a, a racetrack and have a buddy drive a car in a circle and take pictures of that, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I gave somebody some advice on uh, Facebook the other day that they're like, I don't know where to go and practice. So I was like, I mean, honestly, a highway is as good as <laughs> you know, practice ability. I mean, the cars are not going to stop going by you. And, um, yeah. it is a, it is a way to learn and it's a way that we've all done it at some point. People just, it's not sexy and it's not fun and exciting. It's, you know, shooting, panning minivans on a highway, 60 miles an hour, but it's the same, it's the same practice. It works. It works the same way. Panning doesn't matter what, what you're panning. It works. But, the theory is the same. So that, I mean, that's what I'm telling people is like, you know, if you can't go to a racetrack, go to the next best thing, whatever that is. Yeah. I mean, no kidding. You could kind of carve out your own niche and kind of <laughs> do like a street photography version of yeah. motorsports where yeah. you're a, a photographer that takes candid photos of, you know, cool cars on the actual road, you know? Exactly. Um, so that is one thing that I've noticed moving from LA to Nashville is I see way less exotic cars than I was seeing. Yeah, in Nashville Pasadena. doesn't have the car scene, but, <laughs> but LA would. <laughs> Even just like the, I I grew up with with that. I mean, I'm from Nashville, so like it didn't seem to be that big of a deal. But then when I moved there, I'm like, oh wow, everybody has nice cars here. It's crazy. Yeah. And there's a lot of Teslas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so many Teslas. Yep. I still have my pre-order on the uh, on the Cybertruck, uh, my hundred dollar deposit. So yeah, I'm, I'm I'm waiting to see when they start rolling those out. I think it'd be really fun. Now that I live here in the South, and there's plenty of room for a, a vehicle like that, I think you can buy it with the ATV as well. Uh, yeah. 
So that, I mean, that'd be super cool. <laughs> Let's, I should drive up to, uh, to Charlotte and we could, we could go off-roading on the side. I'd love to see one. I, I think it'd be cool. You could, you could shoot it. We could do a shoot. Let's do it. It'd be awesome. Um, so uh, one of the things that just fascinates me about what you do is just the technique behind taking motorsport photography. And so I'd love to dive into that because again, a lot of people listening are, you know, traditional photographers, maybe portrait photographers, landscape photographers. Uh, and hopefully we have some listeners of this show right now that are aspiring motorsport photographers, or even some of your fans will listen to this show. Um, because your title is, your name is the title of the show. Um, I'd love to get into the technique of how you actually capture uh, fast moving vehicles. I think we might have touched on it a little bit on the previous show, but I'd love to just, you know, get your thoughts on, on that. Somebody who is just picking up the camera for the first time. What, what is the technique behind nailing focus on a moving vehicle? Um, the technique is it honestly just takes a lot of practice and it takes more practice than you think it takes. Um, <clears throat> And, and honestly being willing to experiment and have fun with shutter speeds. Like, you know, normally, and I've done all pretty much all kinds of photography over my career. I've done some fashion, I've done food, I've done landscapes. Um, and generally your goal with anything is to make sure that the, the subject is sharp. And so with shutter speed, when you start adjusting shutter speed and going to slower shutter speeds, and I'm not talking like a 200th or a hundredth or even like an 80th. I'm talking like, you know, a 40th, a 30th, a 20th, a 10th, um, half second stuff of stuff that's moving and you're panning it. It's not easy. And it just takes a lot of practice. And I've, I've done this for a really long time. I do it almost every week of the year and you know, like two weeks ago, I was in Daytona for the 24 hour race and over basically seven days of work, I was like standing next to a, a racetrack, not in the media center, standing next to a racetrack for about like 33 hours. And that's most people's, you know, like that's, that's, a, that's pushing toward an average work week for most people. And that doesn't include the time that I'm editing and doing all the other stuff that I have to do. That's literally just track side. And, um, so when you have like 33 hours over seven days of practice, like you're going to get pretty good at it. You're going to get pretty good at it just because you have to, like you get used to, um, cars going by you really quickly and you get used to where you should go, where you should not go. Um, there's so many variables that play into whether a picture will be sharp. So for me, it's just, it's just, you gotta, you gotta really spend a lot of time shooting stuff that's moving and shooting stuff that is, um, not just moving, but moving kind of fast so that you can really understand how, how shutter speed works and how motion works and, and race cars work because it's not as simple as like it's moving from left to right or right to left. There's a lot to it. So the more time you can do it, the, the easier it'll feel the more comfortable you'll feel when you start playing with slower shutter speeds, things change a lot. Um, it, it's just, it just takes a ton of practice is, is the only thing I can really <laughs> and, uh, add to it. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine trying to nail focus on one, one tenth of a shutter, uh, on a vehicle going, you know, 90 miles an hour. That's insane. It's not as hard as you think it is though, because, um, with car racing, 
it's it's very like if you look at a racetrack as a as a landscape basically your subject is only ever going to be in a very small window of that racetrack like there's a there's something called the racing line which a car is is the racing line is the fastest way around the racetrack and the racetrack the only reason that racetracks exist is for cars to be on them and bikes to be on them and for there to be a race happening. So the whole goal is for a car to go as fast as it can around the racetrack. And to do that, it's going to be on the racing line. And the racing line is literally the width of a car. So if you are, um, you know, 200 yards back, the racing line is a very, very small window of, of place in front of you. So when you think about it, you know, and I get this question a lot. It's like, how do you, how do you manage to capture something going 200 miles an hour? I was like, well, honestly, if you can, if you can lock focus on that one place, it's not hard. Like, you know, pump your shutter speed up if you want to freeze the motion or start sh uh, slower shutter speeds if you want to show motion. Um, but the car is never really going to not be in that spot. And if it's not in that spot, something really seriously wrong is happening and you should either run or you should be prepared to capture it. And, um, and it's, it just takes kind of understanding that. And, and the more you have practice with that and the more you play with shutter speeds at like a 20th or a 10th, it, it gets really fun because all those like gross backgrounds of porta potties and fences and, you know, what like people wearing neon vests and things like that, um, you know, and, and buses, like stuff in the background literally just becomes color. And if you do it right and you're really smooth with it, panning is, is not as hard as uh, people make it out to be. It just takes practice. Yeah. I mean, that's the trick, right? Is if, if you're shooting at one twentieth of a second of a car going 200 miles an hour, you have to pan with it. So I would imagine that you do this enough, like you have, you become, it becomes second nature and, and the muscle memory of you're basically a human tripod. And, uh, you also, you could probably look at a race track and you know, exactly because you've just intuitively done this so much, you know, where the race line is. So, you know, me going into it with no experience, not even, I've never even heard of the race line. I just see a circle and they go in a circle. Uh, I wouldn't know that unless you obviously you know you just told me so now I the, go one of the it. best pieces of advice that i was ever given when i was working at a newspaper is to put the camera down and just use your eyes and mm -hmm. and truly it is amazing how true that is because if you put the camera down it doesn't matter what you're shooting if you put the camera down and really like take it in from the perspective of your eyes and what you're seeing and what you're experiencing you can really pick up a lot and your eye like naturally pans. So yeah. if you're, if you follow something that's moving across your field of vision and you follow it, like the background is blurry because your eyes are tracking whatever is, is moving in front of you. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of see what a pan would look like just because your eye is doing it. And sometimes it looks better with a camera and sometimes it looks worse. And sometimes you have to like figure out that, that right shutter speed before you can really say like, this is what I want. And sometimes I'll look at something and be like, this isn't worth shooting, but I'll shoot it just, just for kicks anyway. Cause I've got time and I'll try it. I'll be like, this is amazing. This is, I'm seeing <laughs> something that I didn't see 
with my eye, but the camera's capturing it in a different way, or there's like background highlights, or there's a color that I didn't notice. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot to be said for putting the camera down and really taking in the landscape, taking in the experience, taking in the subject, taking in the moment, and then you can kind of like focus on that with your camera. That's the beauty of digital is you can, you can actually look at it and you don't have to <laughs> guesstimate. And that's a, that's actually a great like segue into, you know, I, I take a lot of pictures like racetrack, race car photography, motorsport photography is really heavy on, on pictures. And, <laughs> um, and I'm not like shy about saying that. I mean, during the 24 hour race at Daytona two weeks ago, I took 26,000 pictures. It was more yes. than 26,000 pictures over <laughs> the course of the race. So the race is yeah. 24 hours long, but I'm not just like, I'm not just picking up the camera at the start and p- putting the camera down at the end. There's like a lot before the race and there's a lot after the race. And so it was about 30, one or 32 hours of work where I was actually taking pictures. And if you take 32 hours and divide it by 26,000, it's less than a thousand pictures. It's less than a thousand pictures an hour, which isn't like an insane number. Um, I feel like most wedding photographers would probably get pretty close to that. If they had to shoot a wedding for 24 hours or 31 hours of wedding photography coverage, you'd probably get pretty close to that number, but we're not shooting. We're not shooting film anymore. Like you don't have to, you know, just be super, super conscientious of like, Oh, I've only got two rolls of film left. I better like (laughs) use these really carefully and, and not, um, mess around with like slow shutter speeds because I'm not guaranteed to get it. Like I have a whole, uh, memory card wall of Lexar cards that are 200, 200 gigs. Like I'm, (laughs) I'm not short on memory. So the only limitation is like physically my shutter and if I blow a shutter because you know I've I've overused it so um yeah like don't be afraid to like experiment because it's gonna take it's not just practice but it takes doing it and it takes like actually taking pictures and not just like one picture it takes taking thousands of pictures to really start to understand uh how the camera works and you can't be like oh I took I took 10 pictures and only like one of them was sharp I was like yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> I, I literally, I have, I've had people say that all the time. It's like, well, I, I only got like one picture sharp. And I was like, well, how many did you take? Like, I, I don't know. I stood there for maybe 20 minutes and took like 150. I was like, I took 150 between, you know, three cars going by me for 30 <laughs> seconds. Like I'm just rolling through the shutter because I can, and I can go through it yeah. really quickly in photo mechanic and it's not going to cost me any time to do it. It's going to be very jarringly visible which pictures are sharp and which pictures aren't and i can like i can just photo one out really quickly what's photo mechanic uh photo mechanic is like a it's a program that it's kind of like adobe bridge um i know you can do it in lightroom as well but it's it's basically a way uh i picked i first heard about it when i was working at newspapers but it's just a great way to look at high volumes of images very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can color class them, you can caption them, um, you can FTP and send pictures. It's not an editing platform at all. It's literally just- Culling. Yeah, it's culling. And so I'll just dump all my my photos from, you know, a part of the race. So I I normally break up a 24 hour race into four folders, like Uh Daytona one, Daytona two, Daytona three, Daytona four, basically by the quarters of the race. And I'll just dump that folder into photo mechanic and then just like really, really quickly, like 
not sharp, not sharp, not sharp, sharp, not sharp, sharp. <laughs> like just kind of, and I'll, and at the end of it, I'll have a, a color selection of like, wow. you know, one through nine for my clients. And then I'll go back through that, um, days or weeks after and pull pictures that aren't client pictures, but that I still like. And then I want to post to social media or just have on my archive, but it's just a great way to go through a ton of pictures. And do you take all raw photos or do you do JPEG? Yeah, these are, these are all raw photos. Um, again, I don't know why anyone would shoot in JPEG these days. You know, you can, there's nothing wrong with it, but a raw file just gives you it just gives you so much flexibility and I don't even do that much editing, but if you ever wanted to, or you ever had somebody ask you for like, can like a, an ad agency. I mean, I've had it, I've had people ask me for raw pictures to, to then like, you know, put, make them the way that they wanted to make them. And these memory cards and cameras are so good at, at handling raw pictures. It's not, a, it's not a disability at all. So I, I uh, yeah, I just mentioned I I do take pictures of my kids uh, JPEG because I just drag them, I just drag them straight to Google Photos and and yeah. just like you know I don't want to edit them. <laughs> yeah, you don't and and you wouldn't need, you don't need to with like that stuff. Anything work related, yeah, 100% exactly. Is in raw. Exactly, it's kind of like for video people, uh, you know, shooting ten bit or twelve bit, you know, high resolution with a uh, high bit rate. And shooting log, you know, you want to you want to save all your highlights and shadows so that you can play with it later. But um, exactly cool. I, I need to try out this camera uh, or photo mechanic. This sounds really good because like Adobe stuff is just so slow. It's uh, like Lightroom is great, but it feels like a just kind of a beast of a app. Still, it, like it, yeah, it's just a photo mechanic. App. I've used it for uh, like twelve years now, and um, it's it's honestly like one of the pieces of equipment that I rely on the most, like it is, it is how I look at pictures. It's not how I edit pictures. I put a, I pull everything into Lightroom, but, um, you know, as a way to, you know, keep my Lightroom catalog kind of a little cleaner too. Uh -huh. it, it, instead of like moving 26,000 pictures into my Lightroom catalog, I can just have them looking on photo mechanic. Um, and it's only pulling the, like when you take a picture, your camera is basically also taking uh, or is a, is able to do a, a low res um, JPEG file that it is accompanied to the raw file. So yeah. when you're when you're looking through Photo Mechanic, it's actually looking at the JPEG preview of the raw file. Okay. Um, so you do raw and JPEG when you're no, it's just it's pictures? just raw. But what it's showing you is like not it's not showing you the raw file. Like when you oh. pull it into into Lightroom, it's like really washed out um yeah. it's more how it looked in the back of the camera if that makes sense gotcha so it's looking at just like a really low res version oh, but it's, cool. it's still it's still like a full res but it's it's it, i don't really know how it works but that's it cool. works. i don't know that so raw data holds some sort of low res jpeg in, in the file apparently yeah okay that's cool um i mean that that also segues to uh the gear i think out of all the photographers in the world, sports uh, photographers are the most brutal with the with the devices, and that's why often when it comes to uh, cameras, you know, Canon, Sony, Nikon, all the all those companies, their flagship they call them the flagship camera is a sports photography camera, <laughs> like it always is, because it's literally the Ferrari of 
all the other cameras because it has to be able to withstand the intense uh, bursts that you guys do. The focus has to be just perfect. Um, and, the and weather sealing. Weather sealing, yeah. I mean, there's times where you're in the middle of a downpour and it has to work. Like, you have no option. Yeah. I mean, tell me about that. The, the gear itself is a tank, right? Yeah, it's... It, I mean, no disrespect to anybody else that shoots anything. Um, there's very few niches in the photography world that abuse camera gear like sports photographers do and motorsports photographers in particular. Um, I have two, two camera bodies and both of them on the original shutter, nothing's been replaced. They're both over 950,000 on the shutter. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> and they're, and the shutter is rated for 500,000. So I'm okay, so you're way for a... overdue for uh, a problem. Um, <laughs> so I've started bringing it back up to races, but yeah, we, we abuse camera equipment. Don't ever buy a used camera off of me or anybody else uh, <laughs> that shoots sports for a living because you know, the, the tops and the sides of our cameras, the lenses, they are beat, beat up. Like there's <laughs> nothing, there's nothing new looking about, <clears throat> about any of my equipment. And I always kind of like, you know, question, like when I see a professional motorsports photographer, if they're a professional motorsports photographer and if their camera gear looks brand new, because they're <laughs> either brand new to being a motorsports photographer or they just bought the lens because that's the only two reasons that their lens <laughs> equipment would be absolutely beat up. Um, but yeah, we, I mean, we abuse it. Like it's just, we're, we're out in all weather conditions at all times of day, hammering on the shutter, uh, it's banging against chain link fences and concrete walls. I mean, I have to jump fences sometimes to get to these corners. And to do that, like you're laying your cameras in the grass and you're laying them on the concrete. And, you know, if something happens really quickly in front of you, I'm not just going to like quietly put my camera down. I'm going to literally throw it on the ground. And <laughs> I have done that many times. Um, so we, you know, and I've, I posted a TikTok a couple uh, last fall, um, basically saying that every year I spend between like, it's like three, depending on the year, but between three and $8,000 on uh, Nikon repair bills with NPS. And, you know, a bunch of people were like, why are you spending so much money re repairing your equipment? It's like, because I use it. It's not like, this isn't <laughs> something that I'm, I'm fluffing and having sitting in a, a bubble wrapped um, <laughs> case, like I'm using it outside in the rain, in the dust, in the heat, yeah. in the snow, uh, everything, like literally every condition you can imagine. I have shot cars in and, and it's getting banged around and stuff comes out of alignment. Lenses go soft because they get knocked around. Um, you know, I've had like the LCD screen on the back of my camera break multiple times. I've had buttons stop working in the rain. I mean, it just, it happens. And every time you send something in, you're going to have a minimum repair bill of about four or $500, depending on what they're doing. So yeah, it just gets beat up. And, um, <laughs> and that number adds up really quickly. And at the end of the year, it's just, uh, it's a tax write-off. I mean, it's just yeah. work expenses, but, um, you know, nothing, nothing in my camera gear stays very new looking for very long. <laughs> really 
Well, I, I just, I mean, that's such a rock star uh, mentality. I mean, it, the same is true for guitar players, you know, like if, if you're a, a really, you know, gigging guitarist, there's no way that your, your Les Paul is going to be completely pristine. Like it looks, it almost, it looks better when it's got all these marks on it. Cause it, there's stories behind those scratches and the patina of your camera. I mean, you should, you should see the bottom of this camera. Like it's, it's just, Oh yeah. Up. The plastic like the, is the front element of this, of this, um, 24 to 70 is completely missing. Like, <laughs> but it's yeah, still, it just, I mean, it still works. That's the thing that's crazy. And the, the leather on the grip, have you had to put like, are the, pieces of the leather coming off on the grip oh yeah I'm, i mean this is this is super glued together because i'm not going to send it into nikon and have them charge me 300 dollars to put the yeah the grip the, back on it the rubber back on i just took some super glue and i was like all right here we go <laughs> but I, just, I love i mean as a gear nerd myself and as a reviewer of cameras I love the flagship cameras because they really are such a just dialed tool. And every time I use one of those big beefy uh, DSLRs that you use or, you know, now with Sony having the what's the A1 and the A9 series. I mean, those are a little different. They're a little I don't know if you've played with or held the A9, but it it's nowhere near the build quality of a, of your Nikon or a, a 1D. Um, so I I. I shouldn't say this because i haven't used it but i have lots of friends and friends of friends that i talk to regularly um and the biggest complaint they have about the sony gear is that it's not as weather sealed as the canon and nikon equipment the flagships yeah and that's a huge problem like this isn't something that i can i can have go down on me and and have a problem in the middle of a race if it's pouring rain like i don't want to worry about my cameras like i have stood i don't even know how many hours i've spent in the rain with my cameras but it's a lot and it was a lot last year like not just lifetime like it was a lot last year and um and i've actually heard a buddy of mine was shooting on the um canon mark 1d mark 3 1dx mark 3 and he had it go down and he's he's had conversations with some of the canon guys and they have admitted that their their weather sealing on the mark three isn't as good as the mark two um so it's it's a problem like if it's not super duper duper weather sealed and to basically be standing in the rain with me i mean i'm putting rain covers on these things but at a certain point the humidity and the rain is so much that a weather uh, a weather cover on your cameras is really like it's more of a deterrent than um, actually like stopping rain because wow. it's it's just it's still wet. Everything's wet. Um, <laughs> don't you love don't you love that though? I mean, I I, I get it. excited hearing all that because like it's just fu- it's an adventure every time you go out and do a shoot. I mean, I some of the some of the best the best photos the the ones that I'm the most proud of were the ones where everybody else like all of the amateurs and the people that are not being paid to be out there are like running for cover and <laughs> running to back to their cars or the media center and and all of us that are out there doing this for a living are like where can we go that's going to be the most epic corner like spray i mean there was one race that we had last year in wisconsin and wisconsin in it was in um august so it's hot it's humid 
really hot during the afternoons. And what happens, you get afternoon thunderstorms almost every day. And one of these coincided with the end of um, the IMSA race that we had there. And truly the last two laps, it was, it was, I've never experienced rain like that in my life. The raindrops were the size of quarters and it was coming down so hard that the rain was like coming up at the cars. Like it was bouncing off of the, <laughs> the, the racetrack back up at the cars. And it literally looked like they were, they were just boats. And some of the pictures that, that I took and some of my colleagues took, like it was so cool. And I'm standing there and I don't, I didn't have a, a poncho or anything on. It was just, I had covers on my rain gear, but it was so wet and the rain was coming from so many different directions that everything was just soaked. And I was, I drove straight to the airport after the race. Cause I didn't um, have a hotel book for that night. So I went straight to the airport and the, I had all my wet gear just like sitting in my, my check bag. And I felt so sorry if, if a TSA guy opened it up cause he was going to get the, the moldy, smelly rain experience of his <laughs> life. But it was so cool. And it was just one of those races that, I, I will be forever proud of those pictures because it made for great photography. And I'm, I'm always really excited when I see rain in the forecast for a race weekend, because you don't want it to rain the whole weekend, but yeah. you know, if it rains, it's going to be pretty awesome photography. It's kind of funny. Cause as you're saying all this, it's almost as if, I mean, obviously you're getting hired to, to document the race and you know, people are there for the race, but it's, it's as if the cars that you're doing are, are models and you, the whole point of the race is for you guys to just to get these like really great artistic photos <laughs> because yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they are the subjects they're, you know, they're not living and breathing, but they're living and breathing in their own ways. Um, and it's my job to make it look as cool as it is. And it is cool. And it's not hard to do that. You just have to spend, you have to spend enough time, in those weather conditions, like when it's really hot, like it's just really hot and you, you find ways to kind of either show that, or you show the drivers sweating or pouring water on themselves. Um, or when it's raining, like, you know, you make you just go for the spot on the racetrack where, you know, you're just going to get, uh, just something really cool and different and really intense because that's what I'm, I'm after. And what we're all after is the intensity of car racing. Car racing isn't something that's like an easy sport. It's not, it's not like, a you know, something where you don't have that grit and you don't have that, that intensity. It's, it's just baked into the fibers of, of what car racing is. And so I want to show that I want to show that the cars, like after a 24 hour race, they are beat up, like pieces of them are hanging off and their hoods are duct taped down and, you know, the grit and grime and, um, rubber and bugs and, you know, just rain and mud. Like there's so much to them and they evolve and it's my job to show that and whatever condition, that we have to, to work with. That's what it is. And that's what makes it great because I can go to these racetracks time after time, after time, after time. Like I've been to some of these racetracks, you know, 30 or 40 times now. And, um, and you can always come away with something different because the weather changes, the car changes, the drivers change, the race is different. Like it's never the same, uh, ever. So it's, it's a lot of fun. So what would it take for you to switch from a DSLR to mirrorless? Because still to this day, 
you look at uh, the Super Bowl, you look at you know motor motorsports events, and you look at the sidelines. All the photographers are still using DSLRs. Every once in a while, you spot some guy there with something, you know, like the Sony A9 or whatever, and maybe the A1 will be that 30 frames per second with no blackout. I mean, that's kind of cool, right? Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Um, what would it take for me? Honestly, it would take money. Um, <laughs> a lot of it. Uh, I Because I did try, I did kind of like a semi-canon switch for one weekend and they sent me a whole bunch of gear. And essentially the, the retail price of what I would need to switch would be close to, it would be north of $40,000. And so if anybody has $40,000 they want to give me, this isn't a loaner, this isn't like a pay it back, like, if you want to give me $40,000, I will take your $40,000, but I don't really, I have enough expenses already that I don't need to like, you know, yeah, of course, um, make it worse for myself, um, expense wise. So if anybody has $40,000, I'll take it. I'll <laughs> take it. If any of these camera brands want to give me camera equipment. I'm happy to, to rep it. But currently I just don't feel like having tried the Canon stuff and having talked to what my friends and colleagues that shoot Sony and some of the other mirrorless, I have a couple of people that shoot Fuji. One guy shoots Olympus stuff. Um, yeah, I was going to say Olympus is very weatherproofed. Uh, that's what I've heard at least. I mean, but it's yeah, micro four thirds. So it's, it's really like currently I don't feel like my ability to do my job would be any better or, or worse by switching to mirrorless, if that makes sense. So yeah. until that day comes where I feel like mirrorless photographers are doing something that I cannot do with my DSLR, I don't see the reason to switch, especially to dump. I mean, it's, it wouldn't be like, oh, I'll pick up a Sony camera and, and just mess around with it on the side. Like then you have to get all the lenses to do what I do. Like I'm not just like, I'm not just invested with a 24 to 70 and a 35 prime or something like I have everything from a 500 all the way down to a 14 to 24, you know, um, super wow. wide angle and primes all the way in between too. So it's a huge, it's a huge investment. It's a huge amount of money that I would have to make to, to do a switch. And it wouldn't, I couldn't just do it just, willy nilly like i would actually if i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it and i'm i'm not going to dabble like try one and try like with a lens because that's not how i'm going to actually figure out if it's the right thing for me i need the full kit like i need their four or five hundred or six hundred i don't even know if they make a five but i know the i know the four hundreds like fourteen thousand dollars like that's a lot of money i don't care who you are that's a lot of money oh yeah exactly and if you're not at the end of the day, the client is just wanting a good image. And if you're able to get a good image on what you have, then who cares? I, I, I've yet to have anybody complain. And I've got uh, work, almost too much work coming in. So for great. now, like everybody that I work with and work for, they wouldn't know if I'm shooting mirrorless or DSLR. The pictures are the of same. Yeah. Um, and if you know how to work a DSLR, if you know how to work a mirrorless camera, you know that's really all that matters. I think uh, the the real answer that I was looking for wasn't necessarily you know money is no object like is there a is there an actual uh, philosophy of like I prefer the mirror you know seeing through it versus looking at yeah an EDF? I, mean, I, I I 
I have I have messed around like once for 20 minutes with a mirrorless camera and I do personally prefer to see what I'm actually seeing. Like, yes, it's nice to see if you're going to totally miss on the exposure um, by looking through the viewfinder. But, you know, I'm also I think mirrorless cameras are it their like sweet spot is if almost if you're using like the back LCD screen. Um, the viewfinder i'm not a big fan of the evf it's just it just looks weird to me and i do prefer to see what i'm actually seeing because it's a mirror but with car racing uh everything is happening it doesn't matter how good evfs ever become it will never be truly live what you're seeing in front of you it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how good it is there's there's always going to be a delay of a millisecond where the camera is converting what it's seeing into a picture that you can then process with your eyes. Sure. And with, with stuff that I'm um, shooting, I need it to be live personally, even if it's a millisecond, that millisecond is a difference at 200 miles an hour. Trust me, a millisecond makes a really big difference. Yeah. So, you know, if you go shoot the Indy 500 and the cars are coming at you at 242 miles an hour during qualifying, um, uh, a millisecond or five milliseconds or whatever the the evf delay is is a is a big number that's a that's like feet yeah but i mean okay so the new a1 is is pouting 50 megapixels raw 30 frames per second burst with no blackout and the autofocus apparently is you know really good does do those types of specs sound interesting would you be able to get things you couldn't get if, if you're just you're not ever getting a blackout and you just hold that trigger down and you're just getting 30 frames per second, 50 megapixel raw images. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's some benefit to that where it's, um, you know, makes a, it would help just <laughs> get more pictures, but, uh, I don't, I mean the megapixels, I'm not a megapixel, uh, hunter, you know, I don't want, none of us really want to become where like I take a picture that's, you know, we, I mean, we kind of joked about this in the media center a couple of years ago, and this was even before cameras were doing, you know, 50 megapixels, 30 frames per second blackout. This was like three or four years ago. But a buddy of mine was like, I'm going to sell my, my 600 and just buy like the newest camera that can shoot 30 megapixels and shoot on a 14 to 24 and just <laughs> ever loving crap out of it. And you get, you know, what you'd see with a 600. It's not quite the case, but I don't no, really no. want to become that where you're, you're using, you're leaning on the megapixels to make pictures. Yeah. Um, Use the lenses. But yeah, it, but it is cool. Like it's amazing that cameras are going to that direction that the technology is there. You know, I'm, I'm interested to try it. I just haven't tried it because I don't, I haven't been sent the equipment and I'm not going to rent that much equipment <laughs> for Basically, basically, I'm the reason I'm asking all this is because what I'm hearing is that, and what I'm kind of realizing is that these camera companies are just needing to sell cameras, and so the engineers are coming up with these cool new things, um, and I'm sure they get plenty of you know research and development from uh, working photographers, but it sounds to me that like a lot of that is just fluff, and at the end of the day. All that really matters is composition, you know, being able to nail uh, your your focus by using, you know, by tracking and learning how to do that. I mean, you're using compared to a, a Sony A1, you're using an, a quote quotation, uh, you know, inferior camera with yeah, less, totally. with I mean, less the, autofocus the, points. This is the D5, which is um, 
I don't remember when the D5 came out. It would have been 2017, 16, maybe. Um, I mean, it's five years old now. Uh, like, I mean, this isn't like 2016, new, January yeah, of 2016. It's not new equipment. So, and it's not even like current gen, latest gen Nikon. I mean, they have the D6 now. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that's partly the case that they're they're aiming a lot of their technology above and beyond where we really need it. Um, it looks good on paper. It looks good to sell it, but yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I would use most of the, like, I still don't think I really use my D five to its full ability because I don't need it. Like I just don't need (laughs) everything that it can do. But they have to do it because they have to be able to cover such a broad range of people that, that, that need to use it. So um, I'm interested to try, like, you know, the A1. It, it sounds awesome. I just, if someone wants to send me an A1 and, and all the lenses that I need, yeah. uh, message. I mean, I think when we get to that point when, when uh, Nikon and Canon completely stop making DSLRs altogether and they start making these flagship mirrorless cameras, there's a rumor that uh, Canon will be announcing a a 1D version of the R cameras this year. Um, You know, um, hopefully they'll take all the things that you guys need, like high burst, uh, you know, and then very low millisecond EVF refresh um, and things like that. Hopefully then, you know, things will be better. But I think right now we are in a little bit of a weird in-between where still to this day, it seems like the DSLR is is the better tool. Um, And it's definitely something that a lot of your colleagues are familiar with. And it's something that you've invested a lot of money in. So you, in order to do a switch uh, and sell everything and buy a whole new set of things, it's a real investment. So um, yeah, I I think we are in a weird, like weird time. it's it's almost like not quite as dramatic but almost like when digital was first becoming a thing where you know half of people were still shooting film but digital was there but not quite amazing um i think we're like farther toward the mirrorless is amazing and the technology and the megapixels and the black no blackout and all that is is amazing but i i know most I don't, there's nobody in the MSAPATIC that is shooting mirrorless. So none of the full-time MSA photographers are shooting mirrorless. Everybody's still Canon and Nikon DSLR. Yeah. I mean, I, I would imagine that'll continue for another five years, uh, even with new things coming out. Um, it's like, just like you said, like film was absolutely superior in terms of image quality compared to the early digital cameras. Um, I guess it's not a fair comparison because the image quality of a mirrorless, a, a modern mirrorless camera may objectively be better than a D5. But um, but I think, again, the mirror, the, the lack of a black, you know, the lack of any lag, I think that's something important. And the build quality, the, because, because the mirror box is in there, the camera has to be a little bit bigger, which means that they have more room to, to make it more weather sealed. So... I would imagine that a proper, you know, flagship camera that's mirrorless is going to have to be pretty chunky, even though it's mirrorless. And right now, one of the selling points of mirrorless is that you can kind of make things a little bit smaller, more compact. But I don't think any sports photographers are necessarily saying, let's make these cameras smaller. Maybe the lenses 
could be a little smaller, but well, actually, um, I can't remember if I said this uh, last year, but when I tried the Nike or the Canon 400, the new Mark, I think it was the Mark three, 400, two, eight, like, I mean, I'm, this is like serious first world problem stuff, but <laughs> the, my complaint about it was that it's so light, like it's so light and my 500 millimeter F4, which is, I think it's also a generation behind the current one, um, that Nikon has, it's not, it's not lightweight. Like it's not the old one where it's just super duper heavy, but it's not lightweight. And when you're outside, like there was a, um, there was a session that we had last year at Daytona when I had the Canon equipment, I was shooting the Canon 400 and it's so light that the, the lens was being like really significantly blown around in the wind, like oh, wow. really significantly. And that, that is absolutely the kind of stuff that will affect your sharpness. Like hugely, like if you're, if your camera is like blowing around in the wind, what do you think's happening to <laughs> your pictures? Like they're going to be super duper soft. So That's a good point. You know, if you're shooting, if you're shooting like football or basketball or whatever it is that um you're not using like slow shutter speeds regularly like for a really lightweight 400 is a great thing but for me i'm standing out there in a 20 mile an hour wind and they're still racing like they're not gonna be like oh we'll wait for the wind to die down they're still going and it's raining and you know like all of the conditions of misery are are just piling on and my client cars are going by like one after one and i'm looking at the back of the camera and i'm like none of these pictures are soft and I'm not, I haven't changed my, my skill. I haven't changed anything. It's just being more dramatically affected by the wind. And that is a, I mean, these are things that like we have to take into account and, and my clients aren't going to be like, Oh, it's windy. Like Jamie couldn't get his pictures like that. They don't care. They need their pictures. They have to have pictures post put on on hero cards and whatever else they need to do with them like they don't care that it's windy they don't care that i have like 100 excuses they need the pictures they need them to be as sharp as they normally are and and the way that i normally deliver them and i can't come back and be like well i didn't get anything this time uh better luck next time that doesn't that doesn't work so like, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's hard because it might just, it, it is honestly just going to be one of those things that eventually I'm just going to have to get used to because everything's going to be that way. Everything's going to be light, but I'm just telling you all as listeners that, you know, lighter and smaller isn't necessarily better if you want sharper pictures, because you might have to take more pictures to get the same number of sharp ones that you did, you know, five years ago, because the cameras are lighter and Truly, like, that's a good point about the build quality. I mean, the build quality of the D5 is second to none. And this this whole, like, thing weighs, I don't know, like, four, four pounds, five, five, four and a half pounds. I mean, it's not small. And, you know, the lighter it is, the harder it is to hold it still. Like, if I'm just sitting here, I don't, like, it takes less, it takes more more movement for me to actually, like, move it side to side or up and down, whereas small and light like you have to be very very steady with your hands and that means no outside environmental factors like wind um all those things do matter and they do affect image sharpness and ultimately we all have to get our pictures sharp if you're going to deliver them to somebody that's paying 
Maybe someday uh, they'll make like lead casings for your lenses and cameras. <laughs> like, but I think it would be such a small, like, I know, like, I'm sure half the people listening to this, like this, this Jamie guy's an idiot. Like, no. you know, <laughs> he doesn't understand that we all, the rest of us need small light cameras that I can huck up this, to, to the top of a mountain. And like a wedding. Them. I know wedding photographers, yeah. they sling them, you know, they have one on the right sling, one on the left and they're just all day. So the smaller, the better for those guys. But yeah, I mean, everybody has different needs. This is just my particular need. Yeah. And I'm, I'm basing my opinion on, on experiences that I've had. And, um, no, I find yeah, that fascinating. That's necessarily better for me. No, that's why I asked it. Cause I think it's, it's just a unique perspective. And I think it's important for people to understand that because a lot of people may see the flagship releases from these camera companies and they're like, what is this? Like, I don't understand. Why would they do that? And it's like, well, this is why, because there's a large group of people who, this is very important to. So, um, yeah. and that's why you guys have to pay so much more for the cameras. Yeah. <laughs> the flagship they're, cameras are, I think yeah, the D five is, or the D six is $6,500. Um, yeah. and then the kind of like, what would be the one below that? Uh, well, the D five was the one previous to that, but like the non, uh, battery uh, grip version, um, what is that called? The D eight fifty. Yeah, the D850. So the but it's it's more that's more of like a really high megapixel. Okay. Not it's not a sports body. Yeah, so that one's twenty nine hundred, and that one's got more megapixels. It's smaller. It does four K video. But doesn't know. have the it doesn't have the frames per second. Exactly. So you're paying for that crazy um, weather ceiling. You're paying for the build quality. You're paying for the burst rate. Um, I've I remember when I would shoot weddings. I would always be shocked to see people walking around with like a D6 or a 1D shooting a wedding because it's like, you know, you're not even using like half of what that camera is capable of doing. Yeah, you're seriously overgunned. Yeah, <laughs> being overgunned for sure. I actually own a 1D. I have a 1DC, uh, which is was the old cinema camera from Canon. I bought it for like 1500 bucks on eBay. It's an, It's the 1DX, the original, essentially, just a cinema variant of it. And I, I do love using it for taking pictures of the kids because having a camera that can burst off like that with toddlers is actually pretty great. <laughs> yeah, to toddlers, I have one. They're the hardest moving things you'll ever capture because they, they don't move in a straight line. I mean, no. That's where I, where I said earlier, like, car racing is easy. I shoot, I shoot my toddler. Like, I take pictures of him all the time, and it's hard. Like, he's never <laughs> in the same place for very long. Cars, it's like, well, they're always going to be right here and never, never anywhere different. That's where the Sony's like face and eye tracking is perfect. I think like I'm looking at maybe even buying a Sony camera just for like home documentation because their eye detect is so good that like I can just point it at my son and it just stays locked on his eye no matter where he's going. And it's well, continuous. Sony needs, to, Sony needs to like up that technology and have a, a race car tracking. There you go. <laughs> I think the, I think the, uh, I'm pretty sure the A1 does uh, car tracking. Uh, I don't know. Now I'm going to have to cut this out because of this dead air. <laughs> the A1 is 6500 by the way. $6,500. It's about, it's about the same price. Which is ridiculous for a camera with less lesser of a build quality. And, and add on to it the, you know, I mean, if you're going to do what I do, like you need a 
500 millimeter for a minimum of 400, uh, 70 to 200, 24 to 70, 14 yep. to 24 primes. It's a yeah. big number. It doesn't have car tracking. It just has bird detect, which apparently doesn't well, work. Well, I don't well. shoot birds, Sony. And so let's work on <laughs> I think that's interesting. So, uh, bird photographers, sports photographers, uh, motorsports is kind of sort of similar, right? Do you have any bird yeah. friends? They, they move fast. Yeah, they move fast. And you're alone in the wilderness for hours at a time. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, well, we're coming up to an hour here of our conversation. I've enjoyed every minute of it. I think we could just talk about gear all day long, but. What are some of the things that you're excited about going into this year um, and also just the future of the motorsport industry in general? Um, I think this year is going to look a lot like last year did, but hopefully with without that big dead area um, from March to July. So we've already had our first race of the year at Daytona. Um, I picked up some more clients in a different series. So I'm really excited to have more of that. Um, yeah, I think, I think this year is going to look a lot like last year. I don't think there's going to be anything that's really groundbreaking and, uh, different or cool in my particular wheelhouse. I am going to be doing a little bit more motorcycle stuff. Um, I've really enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun. So I'm going to be doing a little bit more supercross this year. It sounds like, and yeah, just, um, enjoying time with the family. And, uh, I think, I think if we can kind of get through this next year, there's a lot of changes that are happening in car racing in general right now. It's very similar to actually what's happening with cameras that were between the old petroleum and gasoline powered cars and the new uh, electronic um, electric vehicles. So we're kind of in a, a weird like hybrid stage. So manufacturers are, trying to decide if they want to stay on board with what we've got currently or just wait a couple of years and get back in when we are um, electric vehicle racing. So there's been a lot of shift with actual manufacturers that are involved in racing. Um, but yeah, I think this year will be, it'll be good. I'm, I'm feeling okay about it. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I'm, I'm curious about the electric world, you know, like, they just keep getting better and better. And I think that's, I, I would assume that's the future of racing, right? Is starting to take essentially robots and putting them into these electric vehicles. And yeah, uh, it is for anybody that like, I'm a, I, I don't know that I would go as far to say that I'm like old and crotchety, but I, <laughs> I grew up watching race cars. And when you go to a racetrack, like, it's such a visceral experience. Like this isn't, this isn't like going to a golf match where it's been the same since forever. Like golf hasn't really changed. Um, it's yeah. just green grass and guys and girls hitting golf balls and that's it. And people like doing slow claps and that's <laughs> it. Race cars and car racing, you go to some of these races and the atmosphere is such a huge part of the experience and atmosphere is hugely based on sound like you go to these races and you can hear the cars you can hear the tires you can hear um just so much and and with some of the series like there's so many different kinds of engines it's not just like gasoline and electric or hybrid there's literally like there's v6s there's v8s there's v10s there's v6 turbos there's flat six v6s um 
V8 turbos. There's <laughs> and every single one of them sounds different. So you have this incredible symphony of of noise. And if you took all of that away, just poof overnight, uh, I do honestly think that you would see a huge decline in the numbers of people that are interested in car racing, attending car races. Mm. Um, it's it's like if you went if you took away all the atmosphere in an NFL game, just like vanish like nobody's allowed to cheer nobody's allowed to shout nobody is allowed to eat popcorn and um you know like they just put put like face masks on all the players and none of them are allowed to make any noise at all (laughs) it would be a very different experience to what you experience today and that's kind of what it is with car racing like yes electric vehicles are the future but that doesn't mean that it's a good future it might be green it might be uh good for uh, public perception, PR, um, but that doesn't mean that the Indy 500, if you suddenly make the Indy 500 or the Daytona 500 electric vehicles only, that doesn't mean you're going to fill those grandstands because a lot of people are going to go and be like, well, this is boring. <laughs> so, uh, that That's something that is, it's to something figure out how to make it interesting. Figure out. Um, I think, I just think the the cars will get faster and better if you go electric. Not forget about the green stuff. Like they can go faster. They can accelerate faster. They, so they can. There's there's just from the racing perspective, if people are just watching on TV, it may not change a lot. Um, yeah. But if you if you're the people that go to races, it changes a lot. And when you when you suddenly don't have as many, if you don't have. Uh, the atmosphere of, of people being in the grandstands for the Daytona 500 or the Indy 500, it does look less popular. Like that's not, it's a bad, <laughs> it's a worse PR look yeah. to not have people interested in it. Maybe it'll, so I think there's a weird, it's a weird place that they're, they're in. That's true. Track. There's really no other sport like that where it would have a huge effect if, if it all switched. So I would imagine that they'll just be, different niches within racing right you have like the electric series and then you have the the diesel series or or whatever right my my personal uh thought on what will happen sort of kind of is that um is what's similar to happen what has happened with horse racing and i have a huge background in horse racing obviously but horse racing isn't something like horses are no longer a necessary part of human life they were for thousands and thousands and thousands of years but suddenly in 1915 basically 1920 horses essentially were like poof we're out of a job and, um, <laughs> i think they're and happy cars, about that <laughs> yeah cars became the new normal for how people get around and but horse racing still exists and is still hugely popular the most bet on sporting events in the world are horse races yeah. and horse racing still has millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people that follow and watch and watch these big races and it has no relevance whatsoever to to life on this planet. Um, it's purely a spectator sport. And yeah. back in the day, it was like we want to breed the fastest horses because we can we can get you from point A to point B really fast because you have this type of horse. Yeah. And now it's like it's just a sport purely there for entertainment. Um, and I think that's kind of what's going to happen to car racing. You'll have the side of car racing that's like we are relevant. We are electric vehicles. This is the technology that's in your road cars, or we're pushing that. And then there's, and it might 
popular. It, it might have huge manufacturer involvement, but it might not be as popular from fan perspective. And then you'll also have the side of things like horse racing, where it makes zero difference to anybody's daily life, but they're running V10s because it's cool and it sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. spit fire. And you know, you have to wear earplugs when you go to the racetrack and it's somewhere you want to bring your kids because this is what you grew up with. And this is something that is really visually audible and ex- and exciting to go and see. Yeah. It's a very different experience than going to an electric vehicle race. And I've been to one. It's not as exciting to me and <laughs> to actually go and like experience it. It's very, very different. Wow. Well, you, you heard it here first. Jamie's prediction. That's my prediction. Also, I, before we go, I do want to touch on your YouTube channel. Uh, you posted a video back in September. I think that was the last one you did, but I really want to encourage you to, uh, keep, uh, keep making videos. I mean, you made this really great video called frames, formula one and Ellie man's 24 hour 2019 part one. And like, you kind of vlog your journey and show images and you did another one pandemic motorsport photography. What were your, th- what are your thoughts on YouTube? Do, do you have aspirations there? Or do you, you know, um, to... so it's a lot yes. of work. <laughs> yeah. It's, so that's, that's really the problem is it's a lot of work for not a lot of eyes. Um, it's been the most disappointing part of, of putting those videos together. It's great, um, to show people what my job is like. Um, we've done a, quite a few of the frame series about what my job and what my life and what my experiences at racetracks is kind of like. Um, and they're a lot of fun, but the views don't match the amount of work that we had to put into it to just produce those. I mean, just video editing alone is, is a monster. Um, so things like TikTok and Facebook and Instagram reels and Twitter fleets or whatever they're called. Um, <laughs> you get like TikTok, for example, has been really amazing because I can just take some of the really boring cell phone video that I have just randomly taken at races and they go like super viral for no apparent reason. Like there was one video I posted that isn't terribly exciting, but had, it's like, it's almost at 2 million views. Wow. And, uh, I think the most we have on a, on a YouTube video is like 37,000 maybe. Um, and it's not like a small number, but the average view count for a YouTube video is like between three and 6,000 for me. So, you know, that's really, that's a really low number for the amount of work that myself and the video guy that I have edit these, yeah. these videos for me. Um, I wouldn't so. be too discouraged. Cause I mean, this is coming from a YouTuber now, uh, you have everything you need to be a successful YouTuber. The problem I'm just seeing right now is the title and thumbnail and the overall, uh, premise. I think if you titled it with something catchy, uh, but you still did the vlog format. It could totally work. Also consistency. I mean, it took me a year of posting twice a week, every week, nonstop before it became a thing, you know? So, yeah. um, but you have it if you want it. I I'm looking at your TikTok. I didn't really, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but I don't, I don't use TikTok, So I didn't even know you were doing it. And I think that's a great format for you because it's doable. It's obviously working really well. And I would say, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but YouTube has a thing called YouTube Shorts now, which is essentially TikTok. Um, You could start just repurposing your TikToks and putting them on YouTube. Um, All you have to do is put hashtag shorts 
somewhere in the description and make it under 60 seconds. And then it just gets fed into YouTube's shorts algorithm. Uh, so I'd recommend trying giving that a shot. I've heard stories of people um, getting, you know, like a million subscribers in a month because they went viral on shorts, like out of nowhere, you know, so. All right, I'll go do that right now then. Um, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to do any work either. Just take your TikToks yeah. and put them up there. It's, it's been, it's not like discouraging isn't the word. It's just, it video is just a lot of work. And um, <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. YouTube is its own beast. And uh, I mean, you're, you're crushing it on Instagram, on TikTok. I mean, there's plenty of things that you got going on here that you don't have to do every single thing, but but it's, it's part of, it's part of life as a photographer. Now self-promotion, whether you agree with me or whether you disagree with me, that is how we have to sell yourself. Um, and it's worked really well for me. So yeah. I'm going to continue to do it. And this is just one way that I do it. Um, Heck yeah. but it's, it's a lot of work and, uh, <laughs> you have, you have, you know, toddlers and, and it's, oh, when yeah. you have, I'm taking a break. I'm taking two months off of YouTube. I haven't, you know, I, I, I haven't had a break in three years. So um, I just feel super burned out when I come back from a race sometime where I like, I just, I, I don't want to work. Like I've already got <laughs> enough to do. I'm still editing Daytona pictures cause I haven't had time to edit the stuff. That's, I mean, my clients all had their pictures day of the race yeah. uh, by Sunday night, but the rest of it, like the really nice stuff of cars that I didn't need to shoot I haven't finished editing it. So it's been, um, it's uh, just like a time thing. What, what do you mean by that? Do you, do you take some for yourself that you don't give the yeah, clients? Totally. Like I, I mean, I, I shoot all my clients for their needs, but I also shoot the race fairly like editorially too. I mean, this particular race we had, um, multiple NASCAR champions. We had IndyCar champions. There was just a lot of really exciting people and drivers and cars. And, um, so like I will take, I'll cover the race for my clients, but I also cover it loosely editorially, but I'm also covering it because I'm a car racing fan. That's awesome. And I love my job and I love racing. So, you know, I still, it wasn't like 26,000 pictures for my clients. Like it wasn't those like six cars that I was taking 26,000 pictures of, you know, at sunrise when it's really nice, like I'm shooting almost every car that goes by. Um, and one day there's value in those pictures, maybe 20 years down the road, people will be like, Oh yeah. Remember that year that Jimmy Johnson and Chase Elliott, the two like Chase Elliott's the most recent 2020 NASCAR champion and Jimmy Johnson's a seven time NASCAR champion. Both of them were in the Rolex 24 hour race. And you know, it's kind of like history, documenting history of car totally. racing. That's amazing. I mean, I I can hear it in your voice. You're a fan of racing and that, that makes your job even more enjoyable, I'm sure. So, awesome. Yeah, I love it. That's awesome. Well, thank you again, Jamie, for your time, for coming on the show again. It was just a, as much of a pleasure this time as it was the first time. And uh, the only thing I miss is that we can't go get coffee and lunch after this. So I know. I know. Well, maybe maybe next year, Fe February or March next year, we'll, we'll do another check-in. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe I'll come up to Charlotte with my wife and kids and we can, we can do it in person. Cool, man. All right. Well, thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Bye. I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Jamie Price. If you haven't already, go follow him on Instagram at Jamie Price Photo, as well as TikTok, YouTube, or Twitter. He's Jamie Price Photo everywhere you can look.
Again, I'd like to thank Jamie for being on the show, and I'd like to thank you guys for listening every single week. Once again, I'm your host, Dave Mays. This is the Golden Hour Podcast brought to you by Polar Pro, and we'll see you next Tuesday.